Um, I don't often do this. I have a uh, my coffee with me this morning. Um, at least you think it's coffee. Um, I almost brought my mug that says this could be wine, um, but I, I promise it's just coffee. Uh, I've just had some sinus stuff for the last week or so, and so this is helping me today. Sometimes you just need to do the things that help, right? Um, today, we have this kind of strange text, one of those like wildly unclear texts from Jesus. We are hearing about blood being mingled with sacrifices and towers are falling down and fig trees that bear no fruit. And so we should be asking ourselves, what's, what's happening here with Jesus today? Well, something of what's happening is that Jesus is, is hearing the headlines. Jesus is hearing about these stories, these things that are happening around him. People are asking him, what do you think about these things that are happening? This is an exciting strobe effect today. <laughs> I know. Woof. Hang in there. We'll be okay. And so all these people are wondering, how is Jesus going to respond? How is Jesus going to respond? We know that Pilate, who is mentioned as the one who's mingling the blood of these sacrifices, and what do we take that to mean? Well, we take it to mean that Pilate is actually murdering people who are worshiping, that there are people who are coming to bring their sacrifices before God, and Pilate is murdering them, and their blood is being spilled on the blood of their sacrifices. Things are being mingled. Things are not as they should be. And so we hear this story, and at least part of what they're implying when they ask Jesus these questions is, were these people doing something wrong? These Galileans who were worshiping, or these people who were crushed under this tower of Siloam, were they doing something wrong? Were they, as Jesus says, worse sinners than all the other sinners around? And our modern version of this is, why do bad things happen to good people? Here were people who were worshiping. They were doing what they were supposed, supposed to be doing, doing what they ought to be doing, honoring, worshiping, glorifying God. And it's in that act when Pilate comes and murders them. Why do bad things happen to good people? This is one of the questions that we often ask ourselves, right? Why is there evil and bad in the world at all? And it's difficult because we acknowledge that there is evil in the world, that bad things do in fact happen to good people. And it seems in some other strange reversal, good things often happen to bad people. None of this seems to make too much sense. The Bible, as it turns out, has a kind of progression of thought that the oldest texts in the Old Testament, what we see are these kinds of glimpses of God, just these tiny little moments in time that God is revealing himself. And as the story continues to unfold for the people of God, we go from getting glimpses to maybe fuller images of who God is. We kind of come around the other side of the mountain, but still we're only seeing in part who God is and how God is engaged in the world. And then of course, as we move into the New Testament, we as Christians believe that we get a clearer or maybe the clearest view and version of who God is. Let me show you an example of this. Genesis 
6 and verse 13, God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. God has decided to put an end to just, well, everything and everyone. Turns out that doesn't actually happen just like that. The story progresses, and then there's this out of Exodus 20. This was likely written around 1400 BC. And it says, you shall not bow down to these idols or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me. So here, God doesn't seem so bent on wiping out all of humanity because of the sins of a few. It's just going to fall on you and your children and your children's children and then your children's children's children. And then we'll call it good. Fast forward about a thousand years, you get to the other side of the Babylonian exile. This is about 590 BC. This is Ezekiel 18. It says, the soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against him. So you see this kind of progression. God counting the sins of all humanity against all humanity down to the wickedness of the wicked, that the son will not have to bear the shame of the father. So the question is, is God changing in this narrative or is more being revealed about who God is over time? The writer of Hebrews says in chapter one that long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, that God was being revealed through these bits and pieces, almost like puzzle pieces being scattered about. If you've been around Sanctuary for a long time, you know, one of Bishop Ed's favorite things to do is to bring a bag of puzzle pieces with him and he starts to throw them out into the sanctuary and say, look at the peace that you've just received. And you know, you can't make sense of the whole given the peace. Maybe you've received a green piece and you think, well, this could be a plant or it could be a, a tree or maybe grass or maybe a, a green couch or maybe a jacket like Father Paul's wearing today. You don't know because you've only received a piece of the whole. The danger here is that when we try to understand the whole in part, we can portray God in ways that aren't true, are, are only partially true to who God is. The writer of Hebrews goes on and says, in these last days, begin at first, he has spoken in, to our ancestors in various and many different ways. And he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He says he is the reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. Jesus for us is the puzzle put together. The exact radiance of God's glory, as the writer of Hebrews says, the, the exact representation of God's being. 
Said another way, Jesus is everything that God has to say about himself. We might think that that is good news because it means that Jesus gives us this perfect clarity about who God is, but it turns out that Jesus in his divinity and in his humanity is chock full of mystery, just like you are and just like I am. You know this, that as being human beings, one of the questions that we have the hardest time wrestling with is, who are you? Who are you? And we can kind of start to scratch the surface and we know kind of the general things about ourselves, right? Like I'm a priest, I am a husband, I am a a father, I have three kids. But then we start to get into some of the existential stuff, the things that are hard to say the things that are hard to to put words to, like our desires and our longings, those kinds of things we want to see come to fruition in the world, the kinds of goals that we have for ourselves. We are chock full of mystery, just like Jesus. And if it's true for us, if it's true for Jesus, how much more true is it for God? Jesus is everything that God has to say about himself. Unfortunately, that doesn't clarify much. (laughs) So back to our story today, Jesus is reading the headlines and he's basically responding with his view, his, his understanding of evil, his response to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, there are two basic views that arise out of the history of the people of Israel in terms of evil and why do bad things happen in the world. The the first view, this is the older view, is this kind of prophetic view of evil. And this view is wonderful because it makes the world make sense. The prophetic view, it just, we understand it because it means if you do bad things, God punishes you. If you have evil in your life, if bad things are happening, it's because you earned it in some way. You get what's coming to you. This is, it's like karma. And karma, we love it because it just seems so right. And it just seems so just, so simple. You do bad things, you win bad prizes. You do good things, you win good prizes. Deuteronomy 30 kind of outlines this idea. It says, see, I have set before you today life and prosperity. I've set before you death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, then you shall live and become numerous and the Lord your God will bless you in your heart. If your heart turns away and you do not hear, but you're led astray to bow down to other gods and to serve them, you will perish. You shall not live long in the land that I have set before you. He says, I set before you life and I set before you death. I've set before you blessings. I've set before you curses. Choose life, the writer says, so that you and your descendants may live. It's that simple. Choose life and God will bless you. Refuse and God will curse you. But it's your choice. These things are set before you. What will you choose? This at least has a tinge of silliness to it. But in some ways, we do believe this about all kinds of things. God blesses America. 
And we say that God blesses America, the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. Why? Well, because we were people of faith, that we were founded by holy men of God. Never mind the genocide of native peoples or the horrors of slavery. We were founded by holy men of God. And so God blesses us. Or think about what we heard from some of these wacky evangelists during this whole uh, COVID pandemic, that if you come down with COVID, you must be receiving God's judgment for some kind of sin in your life. Never mind the fact that these same folks were very quiet about judgment when it turned out they came down with COVID. We heard the same kinds of things around 9-11. We hear them all the time around natural disasters. And oftentimes when evil comes knocking on our door, we ask the question that makes sense. And the question that makes sense is, why me? We ask this question looking for some kind of causation. We want to know what we did or what sin is in my life that would bring this kind of pain or this kind of suffering to my door. Job's friends do this, searching for causation and for reasons and explanations because it helps us make sense of the world. Jesus' view was different. Jesus resists this prophetic view of evil. And instead, he outlines what we know as an apocalyptic view of evil. And this view of the world is not so simple. God doesn't simply bless and curse people. Evil isn't as neat and clean as basic cause and effect in our lives. The New Testament is adamant and acknowledges that there are other forces in the world, not just God. Of course, as Christians, what we hope for is that what we, what some theologians refer to as the eschaton, right? This is the time when Christ returns and puts all of those other forces to rest and sets all things to rights. This is what we hope for. But it does acknowledge the reality that there are other forces in the world that are resisting the will of God. So just a, a few of these forces that we find in the New Testament. One is just evil people. Remember, Pilate was the one responsible for killing the Galileans as they worshiped. Jesus says it wasn't the Galilean sin or their unfaithfulness or some sin in their life. It was this evil guy named Pilate who killed them. What's important to remember is that evil people are not sent into your life as judgment from God, no matter how true that feels. They just exist in the world. And we're called to oppose evil people, not by not by beating them, not by resisting them or by somehow overcoming evil with evil. We oppose them by loving them and by helping them to learn to love themselves as one who is loved by God. We have evil people in the world. People are just bent on doing bad things. Then in the New Testament, we also see a lot of conversation around angels. The Old Testament doesn't mention angels much, but the New Testament certainly does. In John 1, you know the story, uh, Jesus <laughs> coming onto the scene and the whole, can anything good come out of Nazareth story? And Jesus tells Nathaniel, who's suspicious of him, he says, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and angels ascending and descending upon the son of man. 
Jesus himself is acknowledging, saying that there's some kind of angelic activity in his life and in these miracles. There are some other forces at play here. If you don't believe in angels, spend a little bit of time in a room with sharp corners and a toddler that's just learning to walk. And pretty quickly, you'll say, wow, (laughs) how do they survive unscathed? The New Testament says that sin itself also seems to be a force in our lives. Remember these words out of Deuteronomy 30, that sin seems to be a choice. It seems to be something that's laid before you that you're just picking up. Here is life. Here is death. What do you choose? But in the New Testament, sin is a force that pulls on you. It's deceptive. It presents itself in ways that seem true when in reality they are a lie. It's tricky. It's alive in some way, pulling at us. John 8 says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin, being driven by something else. It masters you in some way. But Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth. And you know this, the truth shall set you free. Being free from sin isn't just about making better choices. Our choices are certainly part of it, and we should probably start there with our choices. But it's about our need to be set free from these deceptive forces in our lives. Here's another fun force, demonic forces. In the Gospels, there's a woman that we're told is crippled by a spirit. Crippled by a spirit. And no one is asking what evil is in her life that causes this. What sin has she committed? This was just some outside force in her life. Here's the point. There are so many influences at play in the world that you're just wasting your time looking for causation. And this is the new idea that Jesus is springing onto his listeners. In in the gospel today, Jesus knocks down this prophetic view and then he gives them a hint at how to respond to evil, not by searching for causation, not by looking and hunting out the secret sin in people's lives. Searching for causation only leads us to judgment and othering people who are really suffering in some way. The problem with this New Testament view is that it's so unclear because there are just so many things at play in the world. But Jesus says, when trouble comes, don't waste your time trying to find out why. Nor should you try to jump into other people's lives trying to play one of Job's friends. And yet this is our impulse to jump in, to figure it out, to get it all sorted, to find the cause and to be done with it. So what do we do? A few things. Jesus shifts the conversation to the eternal when temporal evil emerges. When evil moments arise, Jesus points them back to the fact that God is eternal. Remember, he says, I tell you, don't think that those folks died because they're worse than you. You too will perish. What God is doing in eternity is bigger than a temporary emergence of evil. So when evil comes, we don't have to be freaked out by wondering why 
Instead, we look for what God is doing because whatever God is doing will outlast whatever evil pops up in our lives. When evil comes, Jesus not only shifts the conversation to the eternal, but he seeks to glorify God through it. If we're not careful, we'll hear this as glorifying God because of the evil as if God is causal. God is not. God isn't causing evil. God is bigger than evil. Glorifying God in the midst of pain and suffering and evil is about remembering the truest reality, undergirding all reality. We see an example of this in John 9 as Jesus is going along and they see a man who was born blind and his disciples say, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus responds by saying, neither but it was so God could be glorified. So God could work in his life in a way that makes his faith and the faith of other people possible. Look for the work of God is what Jesus is telling us to do in the midst of evil. So we know what to do. We shift the conversation. We remember that God is bigger than whatever temporal evil is popping up, but how? How do we make some of these shifts? I want to offer us a couple of thoughts today quickly. When evil emerges in our lives, and it will, remember God has eternity to sort it all out. God isn't letting evil and evil perpetrators just run amok in the world for all eternity. It may look like evil is winning the day, our day in particular, but our days are short in the grand scheme of history. Toward the beginning of COVID, maybe you, you saw this. I, I know I read this almost, almost two years ago. It said, imagine you were born in 1900. Any of you see this? It says, when you're 14, World War I begins and ends when you're 18 with 22 million people dead. Soon after a global pandemic, the Spanish flu appears and kills 50 million people. And you're alive and you're 20 years old. When you're 29, you survive the global economic crisis that started with the collapse of the New York Stock Exchange, causing inflation, unemployment, famine. When you're 33 years old, the Nazis come to power. When you're 39, World War II begins and ends when you're 45 years old with 60 million dead. In the Holocaust, six million Jews die. When you're 52, the Korean War begins. When you're 64, the Vietnam War begins and doesn't end until you're 75 years old. Imagine you're born in 1900. It's easy to look at our lives, particularly the pain of our lives, and wonder why there's just so much evil and brokenness in the world. And sometimes we need to be reminded of Dr. King's words that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. This means some days it looks bent toward justice and some days it doesn't, but we are called to trust God is just when God doesn't right the wrongs in our lifetime. Because one day God will. 
Revelation says one day there will come a time when there will be no more sea. Now, this doesn't mean there's no more ocean, no more water. What it means is the sea was this symbol that represents all of the evil, chaotic forces in our world. And we believe that one day those seas will be dried up. This means whatever headline you read, whatever doctor's report you receive, whatever evil you encounter, God is bigger and will outlast whatever evil emerges in your life. Yes, it's painful and yes, it's difficult, but this is just what Christians believe. Not that we have an answer for every evil, but that we have a hope that God sees us and is working together, even those most painful parts of our lives for our good and for the good of our neighbor. Remember, God is not bound to time in the same way that you and I are bound to time. So those painful moments in your past, those wrongs that were done to you for which you're still waiting for some kind of justice, those moments aren't inaccessible to God. But the very fact that your pain resides there, that it exists in that space, it means that God is still working in our past. God is at is at work as much in our yesterdays as he is in our tomorrows. And we may not see it all come to wholeness, but that doesn't mean God isn't working for our good. Second thing is that when evil shows up, we glorify God by acknowledging God's presence with us in our suffering. Yes, this is a cliche of sorts. We talk about this all the time that God is with you, God is with you, God is with you. But we really do believe that God is present to us, that God never leaves us alone. And in no place is that more obvious than when we come to the table. The Apostle Paul and others talk about the fact that there is healing to be found here in this bread and in this cup because of who is made present to us. We believe that God is with us and still bad things happen, which is completely contrary to so much of what we believe about God and God's activity in our lives. We think that if God were really with us, we wouldn't be suffering. That if God were really with us, evil wouldn't be emerging in our lives. But that's just not the case. God is with us in our pain and in our suffering. What if we have no idea what kind of evils God has protected us from because of God's presence in our lives? What if because we are part of a community of faith, we've actually gotten along easier through the evils that come our way than if we weren't engaged and connected? The reality is there is much, much good in the world. And we're not very quick to acknowledge it. And it's all good that God is responsible for. Remember, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Too often we only point out the evil and then we wonder why God allowed it. But the better question isn't why evil? And it's why didn't the good prevail? This is the better question for us to ask. Where is the good now? Remember, evil is really just a paling of the good, a lessening of the good, the good that just didn't quite make it all the way to good. So 
what to do when evil shows up. Psalm 46 reminds us that God is our ever-present help in times of trouble. And this means that God is with us even in our suffering when it seems like God is the most absent from us. God is in the bomb shelters in Kiev. God is with the families that are fleeing from Ukraine. God is in every hospital room and homeless shelter. God is with the single mom figuring out how to feed her kids. God is at every graveside. God cries every tear that is cried. God feels every heartbreak that we experience. God came into the human experience, not just to bring good, but to join us in our pain and in our suffering. And somehow Jesus enters the created world and he takes it all in. He takes in all of our suffering and our pain and he makes it his own. Peter Kreeft, he's an author of a book called Making Sense Out of Suffering. He says this, God himself entered into all the agony. He himself bore all the pain of this world, and that's unimaginable and shattering and even more impressive than the divine power of creating the world in the first place. Just imagine every single pain in the history of the world all rolled together into a ball, eaten by God, digested, fully tasted eternally. How could you not love this being that went the extra mile, who practiced more than he preached, who entered into our world, who suffers our pains, who offers himself in the midst of our sorrows? What more could he do? End quote. Jesus was honest with us. He told us the truth that in this world, you will have trouble. But his first instinct is to run toward us, to come for us and to listen to us and to embrace our pain with us. This is how Jesus approaches pain. And if you want to be like Christ, don't ever enter others' pain for the sake of trying to explain it or try to show people why. Just be there with them. Why? Because that's exactly where Jesus promises to be. This is how we care for the world. It's more complex and layered and nuanced than our brains can understand. And so we just make ourselves available. We're present to those who are suffering. No explanations needed. Last thing. God is calling us to do something about evil by doing good. Never by responding to evil with evil, but by overcoming evil by doing good. Prayer is good, but often we need to give feet to our prayers. We need to embody the prayers that we pray. Jesus calls us to be a light to the world, not to give us a leg up, in the afterlife. That isn't the point. But so sometimes good does overcome evil, that light beats back the darkness that's emerging in the world. And so when we encounter evil, we remember that as the body of Christ, we're called to engage, not turn our backs or pretend like it doesn't exist, or worse yet, to judge those who are affected by evil as somehow deserving of it. But if we're honest, 
when we see hurt and pain, part of us recoils. Part of us wants to back away from it. We don't want to engage with the pain. This is why one of the first things that I do when I hear about somebody with a diagnosis or they're telling me they're sick or they're telling me that, you know, someone just died. One of the very first things I try to do is appropriately put my hands on them, to touch them, to give them some kind of human connection because so often our instinct is to recoil, to back away from pain and from suffering. And sometimes just that act of touch is that reminder that you're not alone. It is that reminder that God is with you. That we as the body of Christ are with you. Don't run from the pain and suffering of other people. Lean in to it. Not with explanation, not by trying to explain it all away, but just by being present with people. This is how God takes what is meant for evil and works it into good. By the people of God, stepping into evil and gooding it until the good overcomes. That doesn't mean God needs evil to bring good. No, that's nonsense. Evil exists. And you are going to encounter evil And you will be tempted to take on this prophetic view because it's easier and cleaner. It helps us make sense of the world. But instead, choose to resist evil by remembering that God has eternity to sort this all out. That God is present with you in whatever evil you face. And then look for how God is calling you to engage and move toward the hurting to bring good. Amen.